1: I'm Caleb Zachron, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Donna Drucker, Assistant Director of Scholarship and Research Development at the Columbia University School of Nursing. We're discussing her latest book from the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series, Fertility Technology. Fertility Technology begins by examining the first instance of artificial insemination performed over 150 years ago and takes us to the present, showcasing our wide range of fertility technologies today. The politics of pregnancy is one of the most contentious in current discourse. Understanding the technologies used in many pregnancies is of utter necessity. And Donna shows why in this concise and highly readable volume. Donna, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Of course. You know, as I said, you know, this is such this is one of one of those topics where I, I feel like if people knew more about the technologies involved uh, and and more about the background, we could have a you know a, a saner uh, public public debate. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, after this, people will, will will have a little bit more knowledge and be able to to contribute to, to discourse a little bit better. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I received a Ph.D. in history from Indiana University in 2008 Um and I wrote it on Alfred Kinsey and his intellectual history. So Ever since then, I've been interested in the intersection of science and technology with gender and sexuality. And so that interest has manifested in now four books and a number of other academic publications and podcasts, and it's a intersection in human history that continues to fascinate me.
1: And as far as uh, this particular book is concerned, uh, I know that this is this is part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. So h- how did you uh, get involved in this project?
0: I wrote a book, a different book for MIT Press's Essential Knowledge Series that came out in April of 2020, just as the lockdowns were happening uh, throughout the world. And as I realized um, I was living in Germany at the time, I wasn't going anywhere. I thought, why don't I write another book? because that will keep my keep me engaged alongside my my regular work activities. And so um Renee Almeling, who's a sociologist at Yale University, held a kind of symposium on on her new book, Guy Necology, um, new new book at the time. And she organized groups of senior and junior scholars who were all working on some aspect of infertility or fertility technology and so i met these fascinating scholars who are doing excellent work and i thought well i've written a book on contraception now why don't i write a book on the opposite which is fertility technology and so this this book is essentially a pandemic a pandemic project that came out of my work on
1: contraception so you begin the book with a history of the first ever artificial insemination so, I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about this moment and how it how it first happened.
0: Sure, um, listeners may have heard of a physician named J. Marion Sims, and he is is notorious for having conducted gynecological experiments on enslaved African American women. And. He did that for a period of time, and then he in Alabama. Then he moved to New York City in the 1850s and started working at a women's hospital. And it was there that he began to experiment with artificial insemination. And so what he did was um, stand by basically while a married couple had intercourse. He sir would syringe the semen out of the woman's uh, vagina and then reinsert it further uh, beyond the cervix in the hope that the placing the semen in the vagina further up in in the cervix to get as close to the uterus as possible in the hope that the semen would be more likely to stay in place and the sperm would be more likely to implant an egg this only happened successfully once and the woman lost the pregnancy, um, several months in, but he this type of experiment may have happened before, but this was the first time someone had written about it. And so, um, Sims became well known in American and European gynecological circles. His work was republished several times in different languages and he became known for, mostly for worse, but also for better, at least in terms of his instruments, the father of American gynecology. But this type of experiment with um, maneuvering semen um, rather quickly became a regular part of a lot of the gynecology practice. Not necessarily publicized, but became more or less available in uh, Western Western European countries in the U.S.
1: Why is it that some people seek a, a technological fix for for infertility? What are obviously there's it's it's very personal it can be very personal uh, reasons, but you know are there some some broad reasons that people people uh, seek to do it as opposed to you know other avenues like adoption or, or things like that.
0: People seek um, fertility treatments for a number of different number of different reasons. Um, in the past, it's most often been um, heterosexual married couples who have undiagnosed and unexplained fertility problems. They can't conceive in a, you know just through regular heterosexual intercourse, and so they seek they seek treatment. Um, and most of the treatments that or the technologies that I'm discussing in this book are not necessarily fertility treatments in that they don't cure infertility, but they help people become pregnant. So there's, there's a distinction there, but also people who are in uh, same-sex relationships, single people, um, people who have some kind of uh, pelvic gynecological urological diseases. They, they, undertake these uh, treatments as well. So it's as time moves forward, there more and more people are seeking these kinds of treatments and more and more people are legally allowed in their countries to seek them because, in, you know, for example, in a place like Denmark, um, fertility treatment was forbidden to lesbian women or single women until... Certain amount of activism took place and encouraged the government to remove that restriction. So, in general, it started out as a heterosexual, um, as a mechanism for heterosexual couples, but it's broadly expanded to a lot of other folks.
1: So, in addition to to some of the work and experimentation that Doctor Sims was doing, um, what are some of the other early fertility technologies? that were used um, prior to to in vitro fertilization.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, some of the technologies include um, insufflation and a salpingogram. And these are diagnostic techniques that appeared um, in the 19-teens and the 1920s and that were used uh, through the 1960s. And insufflation came first. It's a technology in which the air is pushed into a woman's um, vagina, into her uterus, and the amount of compression that is, or the, the amount of pressure that is produced or not produced is a measure of whether the fallopian tubes are blocked or not. So if the fallopian tubes are blocked, the air stays in the uterus for a longer amount of time. If they're clear, it dissipates. So it's a It's diagnosing one type of infertility, which is some kind of disease in the fallopian tubes. And that was an Austrian physician who moved to the U.S. who discovered that machine. A different man in the U.K. discovered a machine or invented a machine that um, uses liquid and pushes liquid into the uterus, looks at it under an X-ray to see where blockages might be. Um, You can imagine this is not a pleasant experience, but it does do a decent job of showing whether or not uh, the fallopian tubes are are clear. Um, But lots of people see fertility as a place where they can experiment. Um, And you could receive, for example, hormone injections. When hormones, uh, identities of different kinds of hormones were uh, discovered in the 1930s, especially, um, you know, progesterone and estrogen. People thought, hey, why not just inject yourself with some hormones and kind of see see if that that helps? Um, doesn't help that directly, um, but plenty of people made some money um, hawking them. So, the other, less technologically oriented method that was discovered in the 1920s and is still used in the present is timing. So up until the 1920s in Japan no one no one really knew exactly when an egg formed and um, dispersed into the uterus. Um, there are lots of recommendations there are lots of ideas but no proof and then a, a Japanese physician named Angino uh, found that it happened approximately uh 15 days 15 to 17 days before the next cycle but you didn't know this unless you were reading gynecological journals in Japan until about the 1930s um in 1933 34 when Angino visited a an austrian physician named Knaus who was working on the same problem in um in austria they collaborated on some work got um, work translated into German. And from there, the knowledge of when ovulation occurs was more or less um, available to anyone who could read English or German. And then, of course, the Catholic Church adopts this method and has still continued to promote it ever, ever since. So there's a range of like diagnostic and planning technologies that people use um, in, in the hopes of... Um, Having a child,
1: uh, you know, with with these uh, these kind of early uh, diagnostic tests and and technologies uh, in the background, uh, I was sort of to talk about in vitro fertilization or IVF, how this was discovered um, and the mechanism by which it works.
0: Yes, sure. IVF was experimented on um, throughout the nineteen sixties by a team in the UK, and also, a little bit later in the early 1970s, by uh, physicians in Australia. Those are the two main areas, or I'm sorry, the two main countries where where this took this took place. There had been some work done in the 1940s in the U.S., but that just kind of fell fell to fell to the side. So there are two. Um, physicians and a laboratory assistant, um, Patrick Steeptoe, Robert Edwards, and Jean Purdy, who are active in the UK. And they, with the help of other people, they figure out a way to extract an egg um, artificially, um, art- from via artificial means, via like a hormone injection. And they extract an egg from... Um, a woman's uterus. Um, they get a sperm sample from, uh, in this case, the woman's husband. Fertilize the egg with the sperm um, in a petri dish, thus in vitro, which means in glass, rather than in vivo, which means in life. So they get the they get the egg. They get the sperm. Fertilize them in a petri dish, and then reimplant the fertilized egg in the woman's body and the first birth of a ivf baby was um louise her name was louise brown and she's now um, now in her 40s the birth happened in july of 1978 it was a c-section and it was a major world event um to know that a baby the first baby that was not conceived in the uterus was was born and was healthy and she was perfectly fine. So another Indian physician um, uses someone's natural cycle and creates an IVF baby um, a little bit later that year. Australian team does it a couple of years later. And then, so to speak, the IVF races are off um, and hundreds of thousands of IVF babies are now um, out in the world.
1: So... You know with this major breakthrough you know by the way 40, 40 only 40 years ago that doesn't seem seem very long ago um really really this is, is is recent history um which just shows you know how how new this all is but uh you know with these kind of technologies and and history in mind sort of if you could talk about some of the the major legal and ethical complexities of using fertility technologies
0: yeah, sure. Um, there may first of all be, um, people have. First of all, people may have religious objections to, uh, fertilization, outside the womb. Um, occasionally, as a risk of adultery, in case, you come across an unscrupulous physician who uses their own sperm instead of the husband's or the partners, and implant and fathers children um, uh, usually of his own without the woman's knowledge or consent. That's that's the the actual event is fairly rare, but the worry is very um, present for a lot of people. That worry and also the ethical considerations of fertilization outside a natural or quote unquote natural process. The second is screening for particular kinds of genetic diseases. So someone may have a genetic disease or on the mother's side or the father's side, and I will use the gendered terms here. And if an embryo is seen to carry the genetic disorder, then the would-be parents will simply, not simply, but would discard it. And the question is whether that embryo, fertilized embryo, has any rights as a human and so there are organizations that then ta- now take over custody of fertilized embryos and try to give them to people with the, with the parent's consent. But the, the fate of fertilized embryos um, that go unused is another issue. Another more rare issue is the idea of producing children through IVF as what are called donor siblings or savior siblings. So for example, if a child has a blood disorder or a bone disorder, and the only way to find healthy bone or blood or any cells to help cure the original sibling, the only way to do that can be to produce a, a second or third sibling that has a healthy Healthy um, DNA, healthy bones and blood that can then who can then donate that their genetic material to their sibling. It's fairly rare, but it does happen. And it is an ethical conundrum that somebody, you're basically existing because your sibling was sick. Um, so there are some definite restrictions around producing siblings in that, in that regard so those are three examples
1: yeah that, that that last one especially is is pretty uh pretty mind-boggling um and you know it's you know every single day it feels like we're inventing a new trolley problem type uh type moral questions um, especially in this in this realm uh, you know you know this is less about a this this next question is less about maybe ethical concerns but just about how fertility technologies. Um, are possibly or possibly not changing the nature and meaning of family and, and kinship ties. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, like you said, there might be certain religious objections, um, but how do you see uh, or how have we seen uh, how fertility technologies have made people reconsider uh, what what family or kinship means?
0: Well, that's, a, that's a good question. So I think it changes how people think of who families are and who they can how they can come come about one example i i discuss in the book is of people who um are both um female identified who want children and they have a good friend who's male and the they ask him if he can be a sperm donor he says yes and it's not he's not just a donor and then and then Departs their lives, he becomes part of their family, and so, um, he, he is incorporated as a as a parent, but not like a full time parent. And I think, um, what's funny is that the word that they use to describe his relationship to the child is spunkle, so sperm uncle, and so, I think that there are lots of ways that. You know, especially um, people in same-sex relationships or people who have more the same type of genetic material um, aren't able to produce a child together. But the DNA of a child can be at least half of one 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 partner. And I think it's we're going to see more and more families that come together with um, non non heterosexual committed couple combinations.
1: So taking us up to, to the present day, uh, what, what is the current state of fertility research and technology development? And what are some of the future? Uh, it's obviously impossible to predict what discoveries will, will be coming down the pike. But uh, you know what's the future of fertility technology?
0: Oh, you're asking a historian about the future. Uh-oh. Um I'm not as yeah, quite as Yeah, don't make a... any predictions. But you know, <laughs> what are
1: there are, you know, what are the major yeah. I suppose the major uh projects that are being worked on right now where, you know, obviously um, you know, in you know, with genetic research, for example, you know, about you know, with CRISPR, it's like we don't know that the future, but we might be able to predict, okay, we can we might be able to delete certain genes and and change people's uh you know, remove change people's predispositions towards certain traits. Um, you know, obviously that this is a slightly different, um, but you know, uh, just as far as as what researchers are working on today, some of the major major problems that they're looking at.
0: Yeah, I think one of the major innovations of the past ten years or so is um, time lapse imaging, in which um, people can um, put together. A fertilized embryo, and then do time lapse imaging to show how the embryo will develop over a period of a few days, and then decide which of those em- embryos looks the healthiest or the least likely to contain any d- any genetic diseases, and then Im- decide to implant those embryos or one or more of those of those embryos. Um, this is developed in the UK in the past seven or eight years. It's also in the US. Um, but as you can imagine, it's not only very expensive, but it also takes a very trained eye to see what how does how a disease might be predictable and manifest um, you know, much later on in in a child's in a child's life. But interestingly enough, there have not been any major breakthroughs in Technology really since the 1990s, and that breakthrough was called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI, which is the process of selecting an individual sperm and fertilizing an egg with it, rather than other kinds of IVF um, or other kinds of other kinds of techniques where you just put a bunch of sperm or a drop of sperm, or a drop of semen, rather, into a petri dish where the egg was, and then let the best sperm win. Um, This is much more targeted. But that happened 30 years ago, that was 1993. And so with the exception of the imaging, what a lot of fertility companies are doing is encouraging people to purchase these different kinds of what are called add-ons. So they might be something like, it's a, it's a kind of unpleasant term, but it's called uterine scratching. So they might, um, they being the, the company physicians, might um, incise a small scratch on the uterine wall, irritating it in the case, hopes that that kind of activity would encourage an egg to implant um, other companies might recommend things like um, that are less invasive, like acupuncture, chiropractic care, um, things things like that. Um, but I think we're not seeing as much innovation on the technical side, more along the business side of fertility technology, especially in the u s, because the u s. is basically very underregulated when it comes to uh, fertility technology so a lot of companies have emerged in a packaging fertility services especially for young women say oh we'll give you the chance to freeze your eggs you'll get IVF um, you'll get um, these fertility you'll get fertility storage or I'm sorry egg storage and it'll all come together in a package for you um, along with these other add-ons um whether or not that's a good idea for a lot of people is another question but i think the more of the innovation recently has become and has come in the business side of fertility rather than the technology side
1: for those who are who are interested in this topic and want to know more or or want to follow uh, the research uh how would you recommend a layperson uh, go about learning about this top topic in addition to just this uh this introductory book
0: mm-hmm. Um, I think a country that is more regulated and has more um, information, I guess, is not not unbiased or, or anything. What I would suggest uh, is looking at the website of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority in the UK. It's called HFEA is the acronym. And what they do is publish a lot of information on these kinds of add-ons that people might be encouraged to use. They they evaluate the accuracy of them. They make sure that these add-ons are are tested in randomized control trials. And if not, they recommend you know people are more cautious about taking on these add-ons. Um, for American listeners, the regulation that the uh, HFEA website offers is not as relevant. I think it's a well organized, easy to read website that keeps track of um, developments in fertility technology uh, that I think readers will appreciate, uh, regardless of, of where they are.
1: And you know, moving on from just just this uh, particular book, um, you know, what what else are you working on today?
0: Um, I've, I've been working on a book that continues my interest in science and technology with gender and sexuality. I've been working on a book, um, on abortion, um, from about the 1860s through the soft present and, I, that's under contract with reaction books and maybe down further down the road, I'll continue my interest with a book on menopause, but that's just an idea right now.
1: Yeah, you're, 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 you're. Clearly, uh, very very active writing about <laughs> writing about so, so many different topics. Uh, well, Donna, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. You know, uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future uh, when those when those projects uh, come to fruition.
0: Great, thank thank you for having me. My pleasure.